Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. The Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter is the subject of this week's podcast. And this book is all about the fact that in the modern day, in the modern age, we are all just far too comfortable with uh, air conditioning and heating comfortable chairs we go from a soft bed to a you know a car and then we go into our office and back home again and, and we never really challenge ourselves uh, and he even talks a little bit in the book about how even the way we exercise is is not really the way we should be doing it so anyway uh this book this guy michael easter is uh he is um, a recovering alcoholic and at 28 he had a, a basically a moment of clarity, um, a moment of reckoning, a moment of truth if you like, where he realised that, that drinking was going to end him early. He came from a, a, a long line supposedly of alcoholics and uh, he realised that all of his, all the problems in his life were coming down to the fact that he just drank too much and uh, so what he decided to do, he had this, this moment of reckoning, he decided to get uncomfortable. He um, so he went exploring out into the world, and uh, he, he he asked himself some uh, what he calls horror questions. Um, when he decided he wasn't going to drink anymore, so well, how do I not drink? What am I supposed to do with the weekends? What do I do if somebody offers me a drink? And he realized that he's just too comfortable all of the time. So so if somebody offered him a drink at the weekend, he'd feel uncomfortable, and that would cause all sorts of panic. And he realized, well, what's wrong with being uncomfortable? Why can't I just sit into that discomfort? And, uh, and, and accept it. And that led him then to, to explore that idea a bit more. And he, I suppose he came to this realization that all of us are too comfortable all the time. Whether it's going from a nice soft bed into a nice uh, warm car or air, air conditioned car into an office and you sit on a comfortable chair and then you reverse the process back onto your couch and go to bed and there's never re- like there's there's certain things that stress us out along the way, but there's no physical discomfort really. Um, so what he decided to do is he found this guy called Donnie Vincent, and uh, Donnie Vincent is a uh, a wilderness hunter, I suppose. He he hunts a uh, caribou, which is a type of deer, in Alaska, and he can go for months at a time, uh, living in Alaska, living off the land, and uh, goes bow hunting. So he decided to pair up with him and go bow hunting with him. And the, the way the chapters work in the book, and this is a, a, it's a, it's a really interesting read. I won't get into, won't be able to get into all the details, but in the book, he, he the, there's alternating chapters between him, you know, describe what's happening on the hunting trip and then a chapter about, um, you know, different types of discomfort or, or uh, talking to experts um, about what discomfort actually is and, and why it's good for you and so on. So uh, he spent 33 days in uh, the Alaskan wilderness hunting. And uh, yeah, so it goes to this guy, Donnie Vincent, another guy called William Altman. And they have a video, I think he mentions it in the book, and he must have, that's how, must have, how I found it. But if you go to YouTube and look for uh, Donnie Vincent, um, and there's a video called Who We Are, I think it's called. And it explains what hunting is and, and uh, why they do it and so on. So it's interesting so one of the things he talked about I, i've probably talked about this a lot before in, in previous podcasts but when we were cavemen uh you know nothing much has changed in our brain our our environment has changed hugely but 
who we are fundamentally on a genetic level hasn't really changed that much from when we were cavemen. Uh, he says that when we were cavemen, and this it's backed up with science in the book, but it, even thinking about it, it just makes sense, that when we were cavemen 100,000 years ago, we evolved to seek comfort because any sort of tiny bit of comfort you could get back in the day meant that you'd probably survive the night or survive the day. The same, it's the same reason that we eat, eat fatty foods and uh, and sugary foods because there's a part of us that that part in our brain thinks we need to store all of this uh, energy because you know who knows when we'll eat again. But obviously that's not not the case, and it's a it's a glitch in the matrix, really. So our environment has changed, but our wiring hasn't. And so any, like I said, any sliver of comfort that we ever would have had would have meant we could survive. But now that comfort is everywhere, but we're still wired to go looking for that comfort all the time. So the way he kind of lays it out is, uh, say you took Homo sapiens who have been around for between 200 and 300,000 years. Modern life, right, let's say from the Industrial Revolution up to the point where, where we have the internet and everyone has electricity and so on, that's only the last hundred years so if you include all forms of human beings you can really go back two and a half million years so if you take that hundred years as a percentage of that 2.5 million years it works out as 0.004 percent of our time we've lived like this we've really spent 2.5 million years just trying to survive and we spend 93 percent of our time indoors which is nuts right and it's I don't know about you people, but I know during the pandemic that anytime I got to go out walking, obviously we all got sick of going for walks, but anytime like there's a there's a mountain near where I live, I, I can go up that mountain and uh, you immediately feel better just being in touch with nature. And it sounds a bit woo-woo, but it's one of the things you talked about in the book later in the chapter or later in the in the book is, is about how getting into nature uh, can solve all sorts of ills. Another problem he talks about as well is that we're never bored. Uh, we're, there's always something to watch. I don't know, again, about you guys, but I have Netflix, Disney+, Plus, Prime Video, Sky, of all the stuff that you need, right, to never be bored. And it's overwhelming sometimes. But because we're never bored, we never really look inwards. And because we never, we're never really... His, his point in this book is that one of the things that they do when they go hunting is that they... They could spend 10 or 11 hours just sitting on, on a perch on a mountain waiting for the caribou to show up. And in that time, there was literally nothing to do. And that boredom became very interesting to him where he did start looking inward. He said he spent time reading every tag on every piece of clothing that he had. He read the ingredients on every single uh, power bar snack thing that he had. And eventually there was nothing else to read. And he had to start thinking, you know, his mind just wandered. And when his mind wandered, he started to think about how he could be a better husband and a better friend and even a better stranger. And I thought that was interesting that we, how, when was the last time any of us spent 10 hours doing literally nothing to the point of, to that level of boredom where we look that far inward. So there's that kind of, that's a discomfort, right? Being bored. And what we'll do is we'll reach for our phones. We'll uh, turn something on the television. we'll, We'll find some way to not allow ourselves to be bored. So early humans, they never really had uh, time to be bored because they had to work hard to survive, right? They're running down animals, that um, type of uh, hunting, what's it called? Oh, it's mentioned in the book. Um, it's gone for me now. 
Uh, but that, the, the type of hunting uh, where you, you run an animal down over days, that's how humans used to do it. In, endurance hunting, I think it's called. We, we would have the endurance just to run an animal down, run a, run a deer down for days and days and days. And uh, so we weren't stronger or faster, but we had more endurance. That was like the, the, the point. Um, but ultimately, the world has improved, right? The, the world has, like Stephen Pinker talks a lot about, all the things that are wrong in the world at the moment. If you were to ask somebody to pick another point in time where they'd like to live, they would probably pick today because they've got the most comfort. Um, but with that, the, the flip side of that coin is that 70% of Americans are overweight. We numb ourselves to the struggle of boredom or of discomfort. They also have something that they call uh, problem creep. Um, he talks about TSA agents, which are the people who check you going through the airport. Uh, if And we've all seen this uh, back when airplanes used to fly through the skies before the pandemic and all that goodness. But TSA agents or the you know the security people at the airport, uh, you see them patting down ninety-year-old people in wheelchairs, you know, getting them to take their shoes off, and it's madness. But this is what they call problem creep. That if if we can't find a problem, then we'll just expand our net to include more people who could be the problem. If that makes sense. Uh, and if you apply that idea to comfort, what was comfortable to us ten or twenty or fifty years ago? is no longer comfortable enough, right? We need more comfort. We're all the time just wanting to accumulate more things, accumulate more comfort. Uh, and they, that kind of problem creep is, is an interest. It's not something I'd heard before, that idea of, uh, you know, comfort becoming, uh, what was comfortable 10 years ago, like I said, is not like, let's say you get a new car and then in 10 years time, you go, this car isn't, this isn't what I'm, this isn't enough. I need more comfort. So, and he said as well that going out with uh, with with Donny, right? The 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 hunter was a really profound experience to kind of bring all these ideas together. This idea of discomfort and and learning to live with discomfort, and not just learning to live with it, but actually learning to to grow as a person, as um, as new age as that sounds. But that's ultimately what he was trying to do: was to understand discomfort, understand that. Um, you're not going to die of starvation if you haven't eaten since since last night and it's lunchtime today. He also makes a point about hunting as well, which is, you know, can really divide people that if you eat meat and you're still against hunting, then you don't know what you're talking about because these people that go out hunting for their own food, it's a very, very profound and spiritual experience for them. And they give these animals a quick death where the animals in a slaughterhouse uh, have a miserable life, and then they get a quick death. These people, these people, these animals on the out in the plains in Alaska, they have um, a free and fulfilling life, and they are they are not going to die peacefully. This is this is the harsh reality of of uh, of nature. Most animals don't die peacefully. They they either die of starvation, they die um, from the elements, or they're killed by a predator. So. Uh, one thing I always think of as well, actually, is one thing I've stopped eating is, uh, is chickens. How does a chicken only cost five euro? That, like, to me, that's gross. Like, if you think about it, what it takes to, to hatch a chick, to raise it to a uh, to a full-grown chicken, for that farmer then to sell it to Tesco or to whoever, and for Tesco to sell it to me for five euro, and everyone along the way has gotten their profit. What has happened to that chicken along the way? I think it's gross. 
Um, so, but like everyone else, I'm full of uh, contradictions and I am a hypocrite. I still do eat chicken, but um, I do I do try to buy uh, free-range organic chickens, which cost 20 euro, but actually tastes like chicken is supposed to taste. It tastes like the chicken from my childhood. That's what I, that's what I always think. Anyway, his point in the book is that um, this, this hunting experience was really profound. He meets the guy then, goes kind of, like I said, it goes from, um, you know, talking about the hunting and then goes to speak to experts. One of the experts he talks to is a guy called uh, Marcus Elliott, who uh, is the founder of a company called P3. I don't know if anyone watches uh, the UFC, but they are official sponsor of the UFC. Um, uh, P- P3s, they're like protein packs or something. Or, I don't know what it is, but bars of chocolate, bars of, you know, energy. But this guy named Marcus Elliott, he does something every year that he calls a Mizogi. And a Mizogi is a personal challenge that's not put on social media. You don't do it to tell other people about it. You don't go to the gym and, you know, put six pictures up on Instagram about it. A Mizogi is a personal challenge that's only for you. It's to really push yourself. Um, so one of the, he tells a story in the book about this guy, uh, Kyle Corver, an NBA all-star. I don't know who he is. But one of the Mizogis that he did with Marcus Elliott, this... this uh, health and fitness expert is they moved an 85 pound rock underwater for five kilometers so they would i guess there was a team or three or four of them somebody would take a deep breath go down into the water and and just shove this 85 pound rock um a couple of meters and come back up for air and the next person will go down and the next person what is the point the point is just to see if you can do it and there's a 50 50 chance of success it took them five hours to do it and he says, this guy, Marcus Elliott, that, that putting yourself under this kind of pressure or this kind of um, strain or discomfort, if you like, is uh, it's about really getting into that flow state. And that's and anyone who's ever been in that flow state where, you know, time takes on a different meaning and um, the hours just float past and you find yourself really kind of connected with some, some task. That flow state is, I think, what we're all really looking for. I found myself in that flow state many times doing this podcast, um, and it's 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 an interesting state of mind to be in. But according to this guy Marcus Elliott, the, a flow state is, to, I suppose, to give it a definition, it has to stretch a person's limit, but it also has to have a clear goal. So anytime you get into a flow state, it has to be something that's kind of challenging to your brain, but has a has a destination as well, if you like. And he says that every society has some sort of Mizogi, whether it's, uh, you know, kids who go walkabout in Australia. Uh, the Inuits have 12-year-olds go hunting. And the Maasai tribe in Kenya, they hunt lions with spears and bells, so they actually warn the, the lions that they're coming. But th- it's all about kind of this, this struggle or this kind of understanding that discomfort is just a part of life. Whereas these days, we all know about helicopter parenting, which started supposedly in the 1990s. And it all came down to the 24-hour news cycle that we're all supposed to be afraid all the time that every single kid is going to get kidnapped. And now we're into the snowplow parenting where parenting, parents aren't just um, uh, watching over kids the whole time. They're actually clearing a path from That's the idea of what a snow snowplow parent is. And so we're trying to remove every single bit of discomfort from our children's lives. And it's something I'm aware of. I have three young kids and I, and I, I try not to be a snowplow parent. I, I try and not to give my kids um, adversity, but if they do face adversity of some description, like and the adversity they face, we might think is kind of cute, but for them it's real. Like like um, kids starting school or 
um, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to, how to hold a pencil and like all those kinds of things. That's adversity for those kids. And you have to give them the tools to get through it, not just to snowplow your way through it for them, but to, to let them feel that adversity, to let them feel that discomfort and let them know that uh, they will survive it. And I think that's so important when it comes to, uh, to parenting, to understand that discomfort you're not going to be able to solve all your kids' problems, essentially. They will find discomfort. There's no point trying to plow your way through all their problems for them, for what it's worth. Uh, so chapter eight, then, is um, it's called 150 People. And as soon as I saw that, I, 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 as soon as I read the, the, the chapter title, I said, I bet you that's Dunbar's number. I bet you that's what he's going to talk about in this chapter. And I was right. Dunbar's number... Um, Dunbar was a, what's you call it, a, like a, a scientist, I don't know, I don't remember what type, like to do um, human nature and that kind of thing, I don't know what you call those kind of people, but um, a human nature scientist, that's what we'll call him, and Dunbar came up with this number of 150, and that's the amount of people that you can really hold in your head, um, you know, whether it's their names, details about their lives, including all your friends, all your family, generally it's 150 people. And that ties in pretty nicely with the size of tribes. Um, back in the day, back in the caveman day, a tribe would have been, on average, about 150 people. So we're wired to uh, to want to be in tribes of 150 people. So it, the the average, and he gives a few averages then in the book. In in an Amish parish, the average is 112 people. Uh, an army company in World War Two was 180 people. Uh, the personal network of Americans on average is 153.5 Americans. And the number of real friends that you probably have on Facebook is 169. So uh, he actually tells a story then about Gore-Tex, the, the people who make the, the fancy jackets. Uh, they, they built offices that only hold 150 people. So th- these numbers are real. Um, so, and actually what he talks about then as well is that, uh, say somewhere like New York, where there's just too many people, right? Uh, you just there's too much going on there. New York's a great place to visit, but um, I don't think I'd want to live there. I remember going there many years ago with my wife, and um, probably before we were married. But we spent a few days in New York, then we went to Boston for a few days, then we went back to New York. And I remember when we got to Boston, almost being able to exhale, like being away from all the noise and all the people. And um, Boston's just like a calmer kind of city. And I remember kind of having that weird feeling. I don't know what, it, I couldn't put my finger on what it was in New York, but now looking back, that's probably what it was. It was a lot to do with, um, just like there was just too much people, too too much noise, just too much on top of you almost. So uh, a Gallup poll found that only 12% of people actually want to live in a in a city. Um, and in this day and age, you don't, even if you do live in a city, you don't even need to leave your house or your apartment if you have an internet connection. You can work from home. You can order all your food to your house. You can get onto your Peloton and, and do your exercises. Actually, no need to leave your dwelling if you have an internet connection, which is um, a weird thing as well. And he ties that in with this fact that the Japanese government have said that there's 500,000 young people in Japan who refuse to leave their bedroom. Uh which is nuts. Like, like, I, like I, what, what are we doing to ourselves? You know, um, people living in cities are 20, 21% more likely to suffer from anxiety and 39% more likely to be depressed. And it, and it probably all comes down to this Dunbar's number, this idea of 
Uh, there's just too many people. There's just too much going on. Part two of the book then, it's in, actually, I should have said this at the start, it's in five parts. Part two of the book is uh, called Rediscover Boredom, Ideally Outside for Minutes, Hours and Days. Um, and it's actually, this is in in chapter 11, where he talks about 11 hours and six minutes, which is the amount of time he spent waiting for a caribou to show up. And the boredom was intense. Uh, but that boredom is, he really had to sit down into that boredom because what else was he going to do? And he gives a fact then, which is, this is, this is I, I don't know if this could be true, but he says the average American touches their phone 2,617 times a day. Uh, you know, like that's, there's no, I mean, I know it's average Americans, but you know, that's just people. Do I touch my phone 2,617 times a day? I, I, Jesus, I hope not. I'll tell you something though. Uh, we, me, we, me, my, my wife and kids, we went on holiday um, to a place called Aranmore up in Donegal, it's an island off Donegal, the north of Ireland, um, a few weeks ago during the summer. And my wife and I decided that we just wouldn't go near our phones, right, for um, for the whole day. We'd spend all the time with the kids, you know, no phones, you know, back to basics kind of thing. In the second week, my wife checked her phone. Now, we still checked our phones in, in the mornings and the evenings, you know, for work emails and that kind of stuff. But the, but the second week, my wife checked her digital well-being, you know, the thing that tells you how much time you spent on your phone and many times unlocked it and all that kind of thing. Uh, when my wife checked her her digital well-being, she had used her phone the week before 19 hours less than the week before that. So the first week on holidays, she'd used her phone 19 hours less than the week before. And she was she herself was gone. That's a day. I spent a day. I got a day back from not touching my phone. That kind of thing. When you when you see that number on screen, you think that is. What are we doing to ourselves? We just don't let ourselves get bored. We don't ever, ever let her get ourselves into that level of discomfort. And I've said that, I know I've said this before about when you're in a restaurant or in a pub with just one other person, that person goes to the bar or goes to the toilet. The first thing we all want to do is whip out our phones because there's no way I can sit here just looking around the restaurant or looking around the bar by myself. I have to check my phone. And it's a weird impulse that we have. And I always try and resist it. I always try and just don't do it. Just sit into that discomfort. Just don't. Just, let, just be uncomfortable, be bored, see what happens. And because of our phones, because of like, not just the last 100 years, but the last, since the iPhone came out, when did the iPhone come out? 20 years ago? Less, 2004 maybe, I don't know. Uh, there has literally been a, been a cosmic shift in how we deal with boredom. It's like junk food for, the, for our mind. If you, like I know myself scrolling through Twitter or scrolling through whatever, the news, you're all the time looking for something. You're looking for something that's gonna that's really gonna blow your mind, and it's just, it's never there. There's always things that are kind of yeah, it's interesting, but it's not. It's amazing. So anyway, this guy uh, Michael Easter, the author, he spent his eleven hours and six minutes being bored, and that's when he started to uh, go inward, right? Starting to think about how he could be a better husband and a better friend and a better colleague, and and really how he could be a better stranger, I suppose. This is something as well that is of a huge interest when it comes to social media. Uh, there's a documentary on Netflix, ironically, because um, we're not supposed to watch Netflix, but um, about social media and how it all, um, the algorithms that are behind it to keep us engaged all the time. But one of the things he says in this book is that if you're not paying for something, then you are the product. 
think about that. If you're, you get to use Google and Instagram and Facebook, all of these things for free. If you're not paying for it, you are the product. Your attention is what's being sold. And once you get that, once you kind of go, holy shit, that's so true. Uh, your data is being sold. That's why, you know, what I've started doing on on, on any, any ad that pops up, I just keep saying, I don't want to see this ad anymore. Click on the thing and say, I don't want to see this ad. I'm not interested in it. Just to see, just to see how far can it go before they're sent, they're, they're uh, showing me just crazy stuff. I don't even know what, what the crazy stuff would be, but I don't want to see this ad anymore. Uh, let's see what happens kind of thing. But if you're not paying for something, you are what's being sold. One of the things he says as well is that, you know, when you open one of your your favorite social media app, Twitter or Instagram or whatever, and it takes a second for the notifications to pop up. They don't, the notification little bubble thing doesn't pop up as the second you open it up. That's, that's not like a delay through because of the internet and stuff. That's something that they put in on purpose because that's like the, like the person in, uh, at the slot machines in Vegas, you know, the, the one arm bandit thing. When you're waiting for the wheels to settle, that's, it's that anticipation and it's the exact same thing uh, with which are notifications popping up. It's 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 that little split second of anticipation, and that gives you that little dopamine hit. That's sneaky. That's a sneaky one. Um, but like that's that's only one. The amount of other things that are there as well that that are being tested and retested, and um, you know they're they're all the time time refining it so that we're all the time the first sign of boredom we open our favorite social media app. It's it's a it's chronic. Uh, he tells a story in the book as well about this guy, Aaron Sorkin, who's a, a well-known writer, a script writer, like writes screenplays. Uh, and he was in, in New York City back in the day and his television was broken and uh, he had no money to go anywhere to do anything. And he put paper into a typewriter and started to write purely for fun. And he said, it's like, he, it's like that night never ended. That's he said his life has been like since that. He stayed up all night writing because it was because of that boredom it led to this, you know, this burst of creativity that never really ended. He tells a story as well about a guy, um, this uh, Torrance test, um, where kids in school who are full of energy, who have inventive stories about why they haven't got their homework done. Um, the one who doesn't follow the experiment on, on science day, who just kind of does their own thing. Uh, he tracked all of them people over their lives and realized that they became CEOs and authors and diplomats and became very successful. And the Torrance test, it smokes IQ tests and measuring intelligence because these are kids who are, they're, when they do get bored, they don't just um, look for uh, distractions. They, they put their focus into something, which I think is the point there that, you know, anyone worth worth our salt knows that an IQ test is pretty much a waste of time. An IQ test me- measures your, your linguistic ability and your mathematical ability. It doesn't me- measure your ability to, to connect with people, to build relationships, to think about your own thoughts, to, to read a map, to, um, you know, to, to, to play sports, to dance, to move your body. It doesn't test any of those things. You want to look up uh, multiple intelligence theory by, by uh, Howard Gardner. Uh, to understand what intelligence possibly is, and the IQ test ain't it. When he goes on then to talk about um, this rediscover boredom and ideally outside for, for minutes, hours, and days, he talks about the, the Japanese inventing something called forest bathing, right? And this seems to be imperative. And 
I know that some people don't like grass, right? As in, you know, the grass on the ground. For me, if I'm barefoot in grass, everything just seems okay. I just kind of suddenly feel like a kid again or something, or I feel literally connected to the earth. Or it's the same when you put your, your feet into the, into the lapping waves at the beach. Something happens in us where you just feel connected back to nature. Um, so the forest bathing that the Japanese invented, well, they invented, I suppose, the, the idea of it. They found that it reduced stress levels. Um, U.S. veterans noted that their PTSD symptoms dropped by 29% when they spent time in nature. But it's the three-day effect is what they call it. The first day is that it just, it is, I feel miserable. We're missing our phones. Um, I'm really cold. I'm really hungry, whatever. Day two, then your mind is starting to settle and your awareness is heightening. And day three, then your senses are dialed in and you feel connected to nature. Now, I'm talking about when I take my shoes off, shoes and socks off in the park and I put my feet on the grass, I feel, feels good. Same thing as putting your, your feet into the water uh, at the beach. But I've thought this as well about even, even going on holidays. The first three days, you're generally still wound up. By the fourth and fifth day, you're starting to ease into it, especially if you're somewhere remote in the middle of nowhere. You definitely walk slower. Things don't stress you out as much. 100% there's something in that forest bathing, and it's one of the reasons why there's always green areas built into, into cities, because people need it. It's like um, Central Park in America. Like that's People need to just be around trees and, and, and bushes and grass and water. Uh, there's something in that. And he and again, this this guy went to the extreme, spending thirty three days in in the wilderness, essentially. But he felt it after the third day. He felt that he was um, achieving things um, in his own mind. And what he said as well is that he slept much better in nature because of the darkness and because of the silence. Um, I'm like that. I I have to sleep in absolute darkness, whereas my all my kids want every single light in the house on. I don't I don't get it. This idea of sleeping in in nature is it's very appealing because it's the way we're supposed to be. Like I said, 0.004% of our time as human beings has been spent in the modern age. We spend 2.5 million years sleeping out under the stars and um, there's definitely a part of us that, that misses it. He goes on then to talk about a guy called uh, Daniel Lieberman, who's a Harvard anthropologist. Anthropologist. Am I saying that? Am I missing a syllable there? Anthropologist. No, yeah, anthropologist. That's the people who study uh, uh, humans, isn't it? And human nature, I think. And he has this idea that we've removed a lot of our sensory inputs. Uh, we wear shoes. Uh, we don't need to smell our food for, you know, poison or for, um, you know, bacteria, that kind of thing. All of our food is somebody somewhere has taken care of it and put it into a plastic plastic packet for us he says we've we've limited or removed all of our sensory inputs except for noise we've increased the loudness in the world fourfold the world is four times louder than it was back when you know we were cavemen but what's interesting about loudness is that in nature a loud noise generally means danger so you know, if, if you're a, if you're one of the, the caribou, right, and you hear a gunshot, uh, the whole herd bolts, right, because loud noises are means bad. And it's the same thing for us for 2.5 million years. But if we've made the world four times louder, then what that means is that we're always at some level having a, 
a drip feed of, of stress hormones, which is leading to fight or flight. We're all like, if you can't get to somewhere where it's quiet and silent, then uh, there's a part of your brain that's always in that fight or flight mode. It's always kind of, you know, what was that noise? What was that noise? And they did a study then as well. This, uh, this guy, Daniel Lieberman, did a study at uh, Cornell University with open plan offices versus people in closed offices. Now, a lot of the time people think open plan offices means more uh, more collaboration, more, uh, you know, casual conversations that lead to, you know, more business and whatever. But what they actually found is that people who are in these open plan offices pumped out more stress hormones and actually got less work done, which first time I've heard of, of any sort of experiment like that, I always thought open plan offices were were great because, you know, what I said, that, you know, people can have conversations, but actually you need quiet. To get into that flow state, you actually do need a quiet space just to get things done. So, um, interesting, interesting one. Part three then is about feeling hunger. This is something that I I believe in deeply, um, about being hungry, about being physically hungry. I think it's actually good for you. The amount of times I've heard people say, and I've probably said to myself, oh, I'm starving. You are you? Are you though? Are you really starving? Are you at death's door? You're probably not. You've got a bit of a rumble in your tummy, a bit of discomfort. And I actually, I don't, I don't really believe in the soul, but I, I think it's good for the soul, uh, having said that, to, uh, to be hungry, to, to feel hunger. I don't, I don't think you should, you know, get to a dangerous state where you're not eating enough calories to, to function. But intermittent fasting, I think, is, um, I think it definitely works. I don't, I don't eat till two o'clock. Um, most days, you know, at the weekends, the wheels come off. I make breakfast for um, the wife and kids, for everyone, and I eat then. But during the week, I don't miss breakfast and I don't have lunch. I don't break fast, as it were, have breakfast until probably two o'clock. Um, right now, as I'm recording this, it's 20 past 10 in the morning. I've had two cups of coffee, two pints of water, and I feel fine. I don't I don't feel hungry. I don't feel anything. I feel alert. I feel on, I feel on top of it. I think if I had had some breakfast this morning, I think I'd, I'd just feel a little bit more sluggish. Uh, and he talks about all about um, this idea of, of feeling hungry, that uh, diets work until they don't. People give in after five weeks, two days and 43 minutes, because supposedly that's when discomfort sets in. And for every two pounds that people lose on diets, they eat 100 calories more because your brain is trying to trick you. Your brain wants to hold on to the fat. Your brain wants to hold on to, um, you know, all of this energy in case it needs it. Your brain is 2.5 million years old. It doesn't understand that, you know, a spare tire around your waist isn't good anymore. We don't need it. Uh, there's a great story about, about uh, George Clooney. I don't know if you've ever seen the film uh, Syriana uh, many years ago, but supposedly I think he put on about four stone uh, for that film. And in that film, uh, or I should say after that film, he lost all the weight and he said, he, he said, people ask him, how did you lose all the weight? He goes, yeah, it's really easy. You move more and eat less. <laughs> like that, and like any diet is going to be about that. It's about calorie, calorie deficiency or a deficit, not deficiency, calorie uh, deficits. You have to burn off more than you're taking in if you want to lose weight. I'm not advocating any sort of diet. I'm not saying people shouldn't eat. I'm, should, I'm just, I'm talking about sometimes it's okay to be physically hungry as long as you're eating on a, on a regular basis i generally find that intermittent fasting works for me he talks with another expert then called uh, trevor cashley 
who works in nutrition, works with a lot of um, uh, professional teams. And the first thing that the author, Michael Easter, asks him, he says, um, why are processed foods unhealthy? And uh, Trevor Cashley says, well, are they? Who says they're unhealthy? He says, we we process foods to do three things. One, to keep it safe. Two, to transport it. And three, to maintain uh, texture and flavor. Processed is not processed food is not the problem it's it's junk food that's the problem uh it's it's food that has too much sugar too much salt too much fat uh processed food is not necessarily the problem it's when there's too much of it he also says as well that uh overweight people underestimate how much they've eaten by about 700 calories every day uh whereas uh people who are underweight are the exact opposite he says that this guy, uh, Trevor Cashley, he, he says there's two reasons why we eat. One is real hunger, as in the tank is empty, we need to put something in it. And two, reward hunger. And reward hunger is, it's the end of the day. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've had a hard day's work. I'm going to, you know, get a sandwich or, you know, go for a burger or whatever. Uh, it can ease stress. Or sometimes that this reward hunger is because the clock says so. Like we all think that three meals a day is is what we're supposed to do, but actually is it? I find that if I eat three meal eat, eat three meals a day, I'm too full. If I eat two meals a day, I'm I'm about spot on then. So that reward hunger, this idea of eating just because the clock says so, it can be a habit. Or sometimes we're just celebrating, right? We're celebrating um it's a birthday or you know, whatever. Um and we eat just because uh, we're celebrating something. Or why not? Because it's there. Somebody puts a a bowl of chicken wings in front of you. Yeah, I wasn't hungry, but yeah, I'll eat a chicken wing. And it's to do with that caveman brain going, there's food there, we better, we better stock up because who knows when we're going to get to eat again. So this reward hunger was important for survival because if you were to eat beyond fullness, that meant you were you're putting stuff into basically your 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 pantry or your, your larder. You were storing food in case we died of hunger. And that that wiring is still in our brain, that idea of eating beyond fullness because uh you know we're, we're packing on the pounds because who knows when we'll eat again when we were cavemen but that isn't a problem these days but the wiring is still the same definitely during lockdown we all ate more because of stress uh because of comfort eating and um, because of boredom i know i 100 did and um, also drank too much as well too much beer because why not right why why shouldn't i have a beer on a tuesday night because where am i going in the morning i'm going down to the going down to the to the shed where I am now uh, to work like there's no there's no um there's no commute involved there's no real effort so I just have to fall down here uh, in my slippers and um it was easy so I, what I'd say is you know if you did put on weight during lockdown or you got out of your habits you know forgive yourself rebuild and start again then he talks to another expert called uh, Mark uh, Potenza Mark Potenza, Dr. Mark Potenza, who studies harmful behaviors. And these harmful behaviors like overeating, like gambling, um, like why do we do things that we know consciously are bad for us, and yet we still have this crazy compulsion to do it? And he says it's all linked to stress, and there's two types of stress. The, there's acute stress where it's like in a, in a horror film where, you know, the, the bad guy jumps out with the knife, and we all jump in our seats, which I fucking hate i can't stand horror films i can't stand those jump scares i think they're really cheap and uh i hate them 
Um, but that's one type of stress, that kind of acute kind of spike of stress. And the other one then is chronic, where it's drip-fed to us uh, in a hormone called cortisol. And because there's so little acute stress in our life, there's very little, you know, if you're, if you're commuting to work, there's very little chance a snake is going to jump out at you and try and bite you or a bear is going to try and smack your head off, right? That acute stress doesn't really exist. And so what that means then is that we're, uh, we're prone to the chronic stress and this drip feeding of cortisol, worrying about bills or, or gossip or, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, you know, trying to have the best thing, whatever the thing is. And what cortisol does is it, is it kickstarts reward eating and it erodes restraint, which is a hard, and it's, it's one way to dissipate your stress. And what he says then, and it's, it's, an, it's an obvious thing really, but what he says then about people who are not overweight is that they don't relieve stress through eating. They relieve stress through exercise or through uh, just through something else, right, that isn't food. Um, and this all comes down to discomfort as well. Remember, we're still talking about how to be, uh, how to be, how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Ultimately, he talks then in the next chapter about twelve to sixteen hours, and he said this is how long it takes to metabolize your last meal. So if you, if I think about myself now, I had, I had scrambled egg at eight o'clock last night, three eggs scrambled, a bit of salt and pepper, delicious, no bread, no toast, um, scrambled egg. I finished at, say, half eight last night. And till half eight this morning, um, it was 12 hours. It's now half 10. So that's uh, 14 hours. There's a chance that will not be fully metabolized or digested for another two hours. So if you if you put, and this idea of intermittent fasting, if you put more food in on top of that, then your digestive system never gets a break it, because it hasn't finished digesting yet. And you just load in more food and you never really let yourself get to proper hunger. So ultimately, this whole section about feeling hunger is uh, it's really about intermittent fasting, I think, and, and, and understanding. I want to be so careful here because I know some people uh, have problems with food and uh, not eating enough. My point here is that if you're if you find yourself mindlessly eating or eating because the clock says so, just be more mindful of it. And I think there's, I think there's something, there's something good or something useful in allowing yourself to feel hunger and understanding that I can just go and, and get something from the fridge or from the press and, and, and eat, that it's not a life or death situation like it would have been for our ancestors back in the day. Part four is uh, called Think About Your Death Every Day. He talks about these, um, the happiest place in the world after Disneyland, supposedly, is... Um, the Bhutan people who mourn their dead for 21 days um, their dead are uh, cremated and the ashes of the cremated are mixed with clay to make pottery. And this pottery is everywhere all over their country, but they're the happiest people on earth. And they work almost exclusively in nature. They're all debt free. They all own their own houses. Um, they wouldn't be as plugged into, into digital stuff as us. But they think about their death every day. This is part, of, and a lot of them are Buddhists, and, and that's part of the the, the Buddhist thinker, um, Buddhist thinking, I should say, is that y- you have to consider your death every day. And if you consider your death every day, then you're going to think about how you're actually spending your time. So the author goes to meet, um, uh, I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, I had it written down. Can't remember now. 
But he's one of these, um, you know, leading thinkers of Buddhism, I suppose. And the first thing he tells him is that all U.S. people, all people in America, all Americans, because the author is American, he says, you're all focused on the wrong things. You're all focused on a checklist. Um, I, 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 one of the first books actually that led to uh, Hughes Because was um, a book called uh, The Monk and the Riddle, written by a guy called Randy Commissar, Commissar K-O-M-I-S-O-S-A-R, I think. Uh, and in that book, he talks about uh, the deferred life plan, that a lot of people defer their life until they have all the things they think they need to enjoy their life. And um, Once I have this, once I have that, then I'll be happy. Once I have enough money, then I'll be happy. And, I, and it's like this guy says in this book, the, this Buddhist guy, we're all focused on a checklist. I've got 10 pairs of shoes, but I need 11. I need more things. I need to check things off my list. And you're all the time chasing this false hope. And we think if we can complete our checklist, then we'll reach some sort of inner peace or some sort of calmness. And it just isn't true. Um, if you were to think about your death and really consider the fact that you don't know when your death is going to come, you don't know how it's going to happen. Uh, if you were to really go deep on that, I suppose, and think about it, go, you wouldn't spend your time you know, trying to check things off a list or, or working all the hours God sends to make money for somebody else because what's the point? What's the point? A guy I used to work with, and I won't, I won't name the company or the, the, the guy, but uh, I didn't know him that well. I, I spent, we did some volunteer work together over Zoom um, actually for, for some school kids uh, a couple of years ago. And he died last week in his 40s, dropped out of a heart attack. You know, I, like I said, I didn't know him that well, but it really affected me because it really can happen at any time. And well, what what are we all doing trying to check things off a checklist? You know, get get uncomfortable with, with whatever it is you want to achieve in your life. And for me, it's this: it's used because, or what will soon be called tribal. I don't know if any I've told any of us that, but it will be called tribe of learning eventually. Um, uh, but this is my life's task: is to do this, is to is to build this company into something that will make make people's lives a little, a little bit easier. I hope, and, and um, you know, help you towards whatever it is you want to get towards. But this Buddhist talks about this checklist of, of trying not to live your life checking things off all the time, and I have to remind myself that as well with with this company that I'm not trying to just check things off all the time. I have to try and be in the moment a little bit more as well. So. Part four, think about your death every day. Part five then, uh, not a huge amount to talk about here. It's ultimately about um, exercise. Um, make sure you do some strength training. Make sure you do some endurance training. Um, he talks about uh, rooking, right? Rooking is basically putting a bag on your back with weights in it and just going for a walk, which is what the US Army do all the time, what soldiers do all the time. Um, and he says... And I, and I knew this one, um, I don't know much, but I did know this one, that if you are into lifting weights, free weights are better than machines because awkward weights are things that kind of, like let's say you're doing a bench press. If you do a bench press and it's it's on a, a rack, like and you're, it just goes, you're still feeling it in your chest, but it's just going up and down. That's not as good as doing it with, uh, with dumbbells because the dumbbells, your your body has to make all tiny little adjustments to lift them up and to, and to um, control the lowering of them as well. So awkward weights are, are a better workout ultimately because that's, again, think about how cavemen were, how we were built. Cavemen didn't go um, bench pressing and doing bicep curls, right? They, 
they were, uh, you know, climbing trees and, um, you know, throwing spears and uh, jumping over, uh, jumping through rivers and so on. All sorts of crazy, what we would call a workout, what they would just call, you know, going out for dinner. Um, it's it's an interesting thing to think about how we actually get our exercise, that uh, walking and uh, lifting awkward weights. And um, it's probably there's probably a lot in that, I would say. So part five is called Carry the Load. And that's it. That is the episode of uh, the comfort crisis, uh, how we're all allowing ourselves to be too comfortable. Um, ultimately, hang on till I grab the book and get the actual tagline. Well, the tagline is Embrace Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Happy, Healthy Self by Michael Easter. What a great book. Um, it wasn't what I thought it would be. Um, I thought it would be a lot more, I was going to say a lot more scientific. That's not what I mean. There's loads of signs in it, loads of things that back up what he's saying. But he actually tells a great story as well about going hunting and, and all the things that are involved in it. Um, pretty funny book as well. He's a funny bloke, um, Michael Easter. So have a read, The Comfort Crisis. Until next time.